Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Hell. Ah, it's our Tell Show. It's a Wednesday, halfway through the week, folks. I'm Andrew Donaldson. So glad you're joining us on this May the 11th year of our Lord 2022. Just continues to clip right along at a breathtaking pace, especially now that we're into election season. We're going to talk about some of the primary results that came out last night here in just a little bit. Nebraska and West Virginia went to the polls. They're not the only ones, though. Uh, our guest today, our buddy Connor Duffy over in Ireland. We had some elections in Ireland, historic elections, uh, sea change type elections, as Sinn Féin is now the dominant political power in Ireland. Uh, also, the long running debate, are we anywhere closer to a reunified Ireland. Uh, what's going on in Northern Ireland? A lot of implications there. Uh, great guest today, one of our great friends, Connor Duffy, on the program. So we'll talk a little Irish politics with him. Uh, also, a story we've been covering quite a bit on Herd Tell, Sri Lanka. Why are we talking about Sri Lanka? Where a lot of geopolitical stuff that we've been talking about, China, India, uh, the U.S., uh, the global crisis that is coming out of Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine, where it's doing things to the global supply chain of food and is doing things to gas and energy prices. A lot of these things are lapping up on the shores of countries like Sri Lanka that were already in a whole lot of trouble, and all these things push them over the edge. We're going to talk about it today. A lot of interesting, intersecting things there to learn because we're going to see it again and again in other countries, and it affects everybody. So we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Also, uh, to close the program, uh, Epic Games, they own Fortnite, the most popular game in the world as of late. They had a cheater. They took the cheater to court. They beat the cheater. And a whole bunch of money is now not only going to go to the people that were wronged, but Epic's going to move them along to a great children's charity. We'll end the program on that note. But first, uh, let's start with some domestic politics right quick. Um, some folks, uh, not all, some have criticized me that I'm a little hard on the Biden administration, like our friend Missy Howe. How you doing, Missy? Thank you for sending in your note. We always appreciate you. I'm a little hard on the Biden administration. Well, I'm not unfairly hard, I don't think. They're in charge. If you're in the seat, you're going to get a lion's share of the blame. Now, when it comes to economics, and the president was speaking on inflation and gave an economic speech is what we're going to be dealing with here. 
it's true that both too much blame and too much credit goes to the president. We've talked over and over again. That's the reason why we have a lot of economists on the show uh, over and over again, because economics is complicated. There's lagging indicators. There's trending indicators. A lot of what the presidents deal with, whoever the president is, regardless of party, they're dealing with something that happened before them and the after effects of their predecessors. Plus, they don't control the financial purse strings without a few exceptions. That's Congress. And to be fair to all of our presidents, our Congress isn't exactly covering themselves in glory fiscally lately. So, yeah, it's true. Not everything going on is President Biden's fault. Some of it is very much not his fault. But some of it is also to blame for him. Here's where we get into this. Um, the president was speaking. Uh, president Joe Biden on Tuesday blamed the COVID-19 pandemic and Russia's war in the Ukraine for troubling economic news as he and his administration went on the defensive over mounting inflation and rising gas prices. Reading from CNN here. The president's speech at the White House was advertised by his advisors as being focused on his plan to fight inflation. And while Biden did speak about inflation, he spent a significant amount of time attacking Republicans for a plan put out by the head of the Senate's GOP campaign arm, rather than laying out any new proposals to combat the worst inflation the country has seen in 40 years. Biden said combating inflation is his top domestic priority and acknowledged, quote, families all across America are hurting. The president speaking here, they're frustrated. I don't blame them. I really don't blame them. There's a lot we have to do, Biden said. When asked by CNN's Jeremy Diamond if his administration bears some responsibility for the rising prices, the president said, I think our policies help, not hurt. During his speech, this is the part we want to get to here, the president pointed to several steps his administration had already taken to bring down gas prices, including direct release of a million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Oil Reserve and enacting emergency measures on biofuel sales. He also cited proposals to raise taxes on billionaires and other super wealthy Americans and by dealing with Medicare negotiated drug prices. However, many of those proposals face a dead end in Congress and the president expressed frustration that the Democrats don't have the 60 votes needed in the Senate to pass the kind of legislation he's proposed. The Senate is currently split 50-50 between Republicans and Democrats. Quote, this is the president now, we control all three branches of government. Well, we don't really. End quote from the president of the United States, Joe Biden. Where I go to criticize the administration, not just on policies I disagree with, but is encapsulated in that quote right there. We control all three branches of government. Well, we don't really. I'm sorry, when you're in charge, you're in charge of what you're in charge of. You were elected president. They were elected as a split Senate by the American people. And the House of Representatives has a Democratic majority. You can't say I'm in charge and these are our policies and to turn around and go, well, we're not really in charge. This is a criticism I've had of Joe Biden for a long time. This is the book on Joe Biden for over 50 years. He kind of wants to have it both ways. Now, some of that's just politics. We know that. But this is a fair criticism, especially when you're dealing with economic policies. You don't get to say our policies are helping people and then turn around and say, well, we're not really in charge. The president has some better options here. He could come out and say things like, yes, inflation is high, but there's some indicators that those peak inflations are going to start topping out and maybe start coming down in the future. Here's some plans we can get together on. Here's some bipartisanship we can work on. I know that's a dirty word. Everybody will roll their eyes when I say that. I know it's an election year and the Republicans are going to do absolutely nothing to help a Democratic president out. But that's the game. That's the job. 
That's the job you've coveted for 50 years on most of your public service life, and you now have. So now that you're in the job, you got to do the job. And that involves playing the game a little bit. No, the president is not responsible for everything, but the president is responsible because it's his job to be responsible. And having the two-handed rhetoric where on this hand you're in charge and on this hand you're not is not going to help your case, Mr. President. I tell you this earnestly. You can't say things like this and then wonder why your approval rating on things like inflation and the economy go down. People will inherently know you're trying to have it both ways, and that'll hurt you worse than just having a policy that may not be popular or may not go across party lines. The back and forth makes you look weak, makes you look indecisive, and your comm shop, which has not done a good job of being coherent and consistent, amplifies these things. This is something you could improve greatly, and it doesn't take Congress or anybody else to do anything about it. You can do this all on your own, Mr. President. And I would encourage you greatly to do so. Get a consistent message. Even when we disagree with it, at least then we'll know where we stand on such things. More Hertel right after this. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for staying with us. We've talked on this program a couple of times about Sri Lanka. Now, what's Sri Lanka got to do with anything? Well, Sri Lanka is where a lot of streams of global politics are crossing in really bad, ugly ways that folks need to pay attention to. The world food crisis that's coming out of the Russia's illegal war in Ukraine that's jacking up the food supply chain all over the world, not to mention fuel prices and other things, greatly affecting Sri Lanka because Sri Lanka's economy was already in really bad shape. They had a lot of foreign entanglements with things like debt. And that really pushed them over the edge. We go to foreign affairs for a minute uh, to discuss some of the other things that started crossing uh, streams here. Um, Extraordinary government spending during the pandemic aggravated Sri Lanka's macroeconomic imbalances. Quick note here, we're going to see this in other countries as well, because developing and third world countries were told by world powers, don't worry about your spending in COVID, spend what you need to go into debt for it. We'll clean it up later with aid. And they did so. And now that aid didn't come or it became predatory debt from places like China. Hold that thought. We'll come back to it in just a second. Indeed, reading from Foreign Affairs, Sri Lanka's government was already disposed towards populist economic policies before the pandemic. Um, before the IMF got involved, slashing taxes that trimmed 25 percent off revenues even before the pandemic emptied the Treasury coffers. Large scale money printing. That sound familiar, America? Led to the depreciation of the Sri Lanka rupee, which was artificially reversed only when Sri Lanka's central bank imposed an unrealistic conversion rate that resulted in drying up hard available currencies even faster. The resulting scarcity of foreign currency has held up critical imports such as milk powder, gas, petroleum, stuff that needs to come out of places like Ukraine that got exacerbated. Back to the piece. This is the part to pay attention to. Relying on bilateral relationships can be dangerous, especially in the context of intensifying geopolitical rivalries. China is Sri Lanka's single largest bilateral creditor with an expanding footprint in the country. And although India's share is smaller, that country continues to hold formidable influence in Sri Lanka by virtue of its political and economic and geographic, by the way, they're right there, hold over Sri Lanka. Both China and India have responded to Sri Lanka's appeal for economic assistance with currency swaps and credit lines, but these deals have been delayed. Presumably, these governments iron out differences between themselves behind closed doors. Um, New Delhi, for example, has been agreed by the cancellation of agreements to allow India and Japan to develop and operate the vital terminal in the port of Colombo. 
Sri Lankan officials have handed over majority ownership of an alternate Colombo port terminal to an Indian company. They've also allowed India to proceed with long-delayed investment projects over oil infrastructure along the eastern coastline. India announced an economic relief package for Sri Lanka that, after some delay, has finally begun to materialize. But the Chinese investment has ballooned. Notably, Sri Lanka entered a distinct set of laws and regulations to enable Chinese-funded Colombo Port City project, which gave Chinese company a 99-year lease to develop and operate sections of the new port city in hope of significant injections of cash. But China has yet to respond to an appeal for debt relief made by the Sri Lankan president in January. Regional and global rivalries also complicate how Sri Lanka can tackle its debt. Sri Lanka's bonds are held privately by private creditors in the U.S. China will want to ensure any relief it offers Sri Lanka is not used primarily to pay off those U.S. bondholders. These concerns will inevitably make a future debt restructuring process even more difficult. Even with all the support from China and India, Sri Lanka's government received enormous blows with the Russian invasion of troops, which tipped oil prices and aggravated the acute foreign currency crisis and exacerbated the food shortages. Why are we reading all this? Because we're going to see more and more of this. China is using predatory lending to take over countries. They're not going to want to service this debt because they can take over the infrastructure. They've done this in Africa. They're doing this in places like Southeast Asia and in parts of the Middle East that they're trying to encroach on. You must pay attention to how this is working. And India is doing it as well because those are frenemies that they have some interacting business districts, but they also got a lot of rivalries. Long story short, Countries in the developing world and the third world, like we've been seeing in Africa, like we're now seeing in Sri Lanka, like we're going to see in Southeast Asia as some of this credit comes due, like we may start seeing in parts of the Middle East, is global powers like China, India, the U.S. are going to be in a tug of war over debt and infrastructure in these developing countries. And tug of wars in places like Sri Lanka means the people of Sri Lanka wind up getting used like the rope. More hotel right after this. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I heard tell show. Okay, we're not the only ones having crazy elections with weird outcomes here in America. Our Irish friends just did this as well. Uh, They had some elections, historic elections. So we're going to do what we always do. We're going to go to Ireland, talk about our buddy Connor Duffy returns to her tell been a minute since we've had him on thrilled to get to talk to him and we have to be very reverential now because since the last time we talked to him he is now or within a few weeks of becoming dr connor duffy how are you you august and notable member of our society sir not doing too bad andrew not doing too bad but should i suppose i should clarify for your audience as well though of course that i am the type of doctor that 
you know, if someone asks on a plane, is there a doctor on board? I very much need to stay in my seat, though. <laughs> you know, I'm not not too good in one of those emergencies. <laughs> yeah, he has a doctor in one of those sciences that I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce out loud here, but he is uh, a great guy. He's been on the program before. Happy to have you back, my friend. Okay, I'm 40. I'll be 42 years old here in two weeks. Don't tell anybody. Explain to 80s kid me how the political arm of the IRA is now the predominant political force in Ireland, because that's what just happened. Now, Mm. to people our age, this is almost unfathomable. To younger people, it seemed like it was an inevitability. That's a lot of history in a short period of time. The old quote uh, comes to mind, it happened gradually, then suddenly. Is that kind of Mm. what we're dealing with here? That's yeah, exactly. So um, there's two elections we do need to cover um, here to fully get across what's just happened. The first one happened a few years ago, and that's when at the start of 2020, uh, just before COVID, um, Ireland here in the south are the 26 counties of Ireland. We had an election where Sinn Féin, the political wing of the IRA, as you would have known them during the Troubles, they uh, won the most votes um, because of some bad strategy and the peculiarities of the Irish electoral system. They actually didn't end up with the most seats, but they were they received more votes than anyone else. Then recently, the election that happened a few days ago that has everyone talking is that um, uh, was up in Northern Ireland, which is the six counties of Ulster that were partitioned um, 101 years ago. And there was an election and Sinn Féin again won the most votes, but now they also have the most seats in the Northern Ireland Assembly which is the devolved government of um, Northern Ireland, similar to how Scotland and Wales have their own um, individual governments as well as Westminster in the UK. That's what the Northern Ireland Assembly is in Northern Ireland. And um, as of this election, Sinn Féin is now the largest party. And that is something that has never happened before. Um, A party that was in favour of of, um, uniting the six counties of Northern Ireland with the 26 counties of Ireland has never had a majority or has never been the largest party in the Northern Ireland Assembly before. So that is a that is absolutely massive. That is really groundbreaking um, because Northern Ireland as a state was more or less designed that this would never happen. And here we have it um, 101 years later, as I say, and it has now happened. And it is now the political wing of the IRA who have actually managed to pull that off and be the largest party and wanting to unite Ireland. But this has been a long time in the coming. Since um, the Good Friday Agreement, Sinn Féin have been really steadily building a lot of support. And there's a lot of different reasons for that happening. Um, As you say, for people who are a little bit older, it's maybe a big shock, people who remember the Troubles. But you have to remember that the Troubles ended over 20 years ago now. There's a lot of people voting who weren't even alive when it happened. And so the issues that have dominated these elections have naturally changed. For a lot of these people, it's like, well, it's the here and now that they're talking about and they're caring about, not um, the troubles which have been over, as I say, even before they were born. So that is a large part of it. It's a generation turning over to a large extent. There's a big part of what's happened here. So let's talk about what those issues actually are. Sinn Féin, um, underneath the, uh, obviously, the nationalism and the IRA connections, it started as a workers' party. Uh, what's mm. the issues that have really brought them to the fore? Because the last, especially the last 15, 20 years, the Democratic Unionist Party, the DUP, that was the ruling party. Did they mm. do stuff wrong? Did Sinn Féin do something right? What's the dynamic there that they have overtaken the DUP and taken power here? It's definitely both. <laughs> um, you, this is often the case in these situations. 
The DUP had a turnover of leadership not too long ago. Their previous leader, Arlene Foster, was previously involved in a big scandal called the Cash to Ash scandal, which was basically, to, to really to sum it up quickly, they threw a really bad bit of legislation that resulted in people being paid to just burn wood in their houses. <laughs> um, and it led to a lot of people, um, led to an awful lot of money being wasted, uh, certainly not what the law was intended to do, became a big problem. And there was, that was, that was quite a while ago now, this was quite a few years ago, but her leadership was sort of in a bit of a problem for a little while there. Then Brexit happened. And a lot of sides in Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK kind of started falling down on Brexit lines. The DUP had a bit more influence because of the way an election went in Westminster, that they were actually kind of the kingmakers of coalitions. So the Tories needed their support to stay in. So that gave the DUP a bit of a shot in the arm in a time where things weren't so good. But then after Brexit happened, you remember that Northern Ireland actually voted to stay in the EU, um, even though the majority of um, the DUP were opposed to staying in the EU. So there was that disconnect. So Sinn Féin has gotten a lot of support that way because not only has leaving the EU been unpopular in Northern Ireland, um, the DUP have also taken a bit of an extreme stance on it where they are opposed to the current compromise that has managed to have Britain leaving the EU while Northern Ireland and Ireland and the UK kind of retaining this sort of special arrangement that stops, um, you know, orders being put up on the island or anything like that. The DUP essentially wants to scrap all that. A lot of people are not happy with that, both the national side, but also the unionist side, because they're concerned about, you know, what would the effects on the Northern Irish economy be if there was suddenly a lot more trade restrictions between Ireland and Northern Ireland. So the DUP have made a lot of mistakes. In that sense, as I say, they also had a turnover of leadership and Arlene Foster was, it's a, it's a funny thing to say about her, but she genuinely was from the more moderate wing of the DUP. You know, this is um, this is a party where a lot of people kind of um, think the dinosaurs never existed. It's that sort of, uh, that sort of a group of guys, um, have a lot of very, very, um, they have a lot of views and a lot of issues that are quite out of touch with a lot of people. So the current leader, um, you know, has kind of made some mistakes, alienated some people in that way. But then on the Sinn Féin side of things, um, the way it's gone in Northern Ireland has been slightly different because Sinn Féin has been involved in the government of Northern Ireland for the last few years. So it's not as radical a change there. But yeah, one of the big issues was Brexit. But then, you know, there's also things like, you know, Kind of cost of living crises, housing costs, things like that, all that sort of bread and, bread and butter stuff or um, kitchen table issues. That's a very big part of it too. That's more true in the 26 counties of the Republic of Ireland. Um, that's a big part of how Sinn Féin has done well there. But like in Northern Ireland, that is absolutely playing into it as well. And Sinn Féin are seen as being very much opposed to the government of the UK, the Conservative Party, which has been in power for quite some time. So, you know, there's sort of a bit of an opposition vote that's happening there as well. Yeah, talking to our buddy Connor Duffy over in Ireland. Uh, we talk about changes in leadership. We got to talk about the generational change. And really, you know, I don't know that you could overstate the passing of the torch here. The current leader of Sinn Fein, Mary Lou McDonald, uh, she replaced Jerry Adams. And Jerry Adams is very familiar to the American audience. He was the guy in the suit with the beard who did a lot of fundraising in the 80s and 90s. Part of that was because he was banned from being on any media in the UK. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but Jerry Adams was very involved. Uh, there's been court cases, there's been accusations, there's been criminal complaints. He was very much in the IRA mold of the Sinn Féin as the political arm of the IRA. 
Mary Lou McDonald, the last 2018. Uh, is it too much to say kind of the clean political new version of Sinn Féin you were talking about? This really does seem like that's a line of demarcation of when this really changed, isn't it? Yeah, it really is, because um, there wasn't it wasn't just Jerry Adams. There was also Martin McGuinness was the leader of Sinn Féin up in Northern Ireland, and he is no longer in charge. Now, he has actually died. But before he passed, there was also um, a change to Michelle O'Neill, who was the current leader of Sinn Féin up in Northern Ireland. Again, someone who was not involved in the troubles in any way. So, um, or well, <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I'm sure it, that's certainly what's going out at the moment anyway. So... Mary McDonald, uh, Michelle O'Neill, certainly not, they're not faces from the Troubles, um, not involved, as I said. Um, there's also, there was some other, say, politicians who were in Sinn Féin, who have also since retired, since retired, who were from the Troubles generation. All of the faces from Sinn Féin that you see in the news here in Ireland these days, they're all fresh faces. They're people who were not involved um, in the IRA, who were not involved in the period of time when um, the troubles were going on in Northern Ireland. And they are really trying to present themselves as, you know, this is a party that is, you know, materially different from the one that was the political wing of the IRA back in the 80s. They are still as committed to a united Ireland as they have ever been, but they have shifted. And it is, the, the IRA used to describe their tactics as, an arm light in one hand and the ballot box in the other. The, Shin, the version of Sinn Féin we have now is committed to the ballot box for how it is going to achieve things. And this has been a long process of them trying to convince more and more people that they have, in fact, made this change. And a big part of how a lot of people are buying that is, as you say, passing of the torch. Jerry Adams is gone. Martin McGuinness is gone. People who are there in charge now, they're talking about other issues. They're not talking about, you know, trying to violently end the occupation of Northern Ireland. They're talking about, you know, issues of housing and healthcare, and, you know, coming to a united Ireland by a vote rather than some sort of military victory over the British. So that sort of shift has been a very big part of how Sinn Féin have become much more acceptable to a lot more people on both sides of the border here in Ireland. Yeah. And just looking at their political platform, especially the most recent one that they did, it's a lot of boilerplate um, stuff, you know, abolishing the VAT and fuel and energy goods, something on everybody's mind with the economy, uh, social and affordable home schemes that they're putting together. I'm using schemes there, by the way, in the version they use over yonder where it's not a bad thing. It's just what they call these things. Uh, talking about should they have an all Ireland health service based off the NHS model? Th this is just kind of boilerplate populist politics kind of stuff, for lack of a better term, this seems like it would get you a lot farther at the ballot box. And I think there's evidence now that says whatever they're doing, it's working. Oh, I agree completely, because that's why a lot of people are voting for them these days. They're voting for them because they feel, well, Sinn Féin represents my views on these array of issues um, more than the other parties do, or especially um, down here in the Republic of Ireland and the 26 counties. You know, it's sort of like, is these other parties have been in charge for a very long time. There are problems with housing is a big one here in Ireland. Also problems with the health system and cost of living and stuff like that. And some people are like, well, you know, let's maybe it's time for a change of guard. And Sinn Féin are the largest party that would potentially represent that change. Um, something to maybe appreciate here, too, is that part of why Sinn Féin became the largest party in Northern Ireland is also that there was a surge in support for this non-aligned party, the Alliance Party. And the Alliance Party don't consider themselves nationalists or unionists. Um, they're sort of a kind of 
middle ground Liberal Party. And a lot of support has gone to them. They actually gained more votes than anyone else this election. So Sinn Féin becoming the largest party is also because a lot of people who maybe would have voted unionist before are now voting for this party that wants to talk about other things. So they're kind of benefiting from that change in the political landscape in two ways, because their opponents are losing votes to someone who wants to talk all about these sort of bread and butter stuff. But also they are gaining votes themselves personally because they emphasize that more themselves these days as well. Yeah, very interesting sea change going on. Uh, our friend <laughs> Connor Duffy over in Ireland. We're going to continue to talk to him right after the break. We're going to get a little bit more into Ireland. Uh, Northern Ireland is becoming a mess. Uh, we need to talk about it. It came up in the in the Queen's speech in Parliament down south. We'll talk about Northern Ireland, the future of Ireland. Is reunification now something more on the horizon? It's been talked about for a hundred some years. Are they actually getting close to it? We'll talk about it with Connor Duffy when we return on Herd Tell right after this. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. We're talking Ireland with somebody that's actually in Ireland who happens to be Irish, not American Irish, where everybody claims to be so they can drink on St. <laughs> Patrick's Day. He's actually Irish, Connor Duffy. You'll believe me as soon as he starts talking. All right. Uh, it came up in uh, all the policy around uh, the Queen's speech in Parliament, which was given by uh, Prince Charles. Unfortunately, obviously, the Queen is not in great health. Uh, there is a lot of talk that Northern Ireland has just basically, for lack of a better word, been neglected and forgotten for the last couple of months. I think that's a fair criticism of, frankly, both uh, the conservatives and the Labour Party hasn't really covered themselves in glory either. I know there's a lot going on in the UK, Brexit, COVID, all this stuff. Northern Ireland is getting very messy and very loud, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And um, something that we need to say here as well is that Northern Ireland, for a very, for a lot of the time of the last few years, um, there actually hasn't even been a functioning assembly there. So there has been this impasse where the parties couldn't agree to work together. And so they also lacked a devolved government. So that is a large part of the frustration that's happening there, too, is um, you've got this devolved power that isn't actually in place, isn't actually being used. Uh, to say that Northern Ireland has been neglected for the last few months is an understatement of the century. I would say Northern Ireland has been neglected for a very, very long time. Um, it has generally been something that I would say the UK political system, the political establishment in the UK have been happy to just sort of ignore since the Good Friday Agreement to a very large extent. And, um, you know, it was kind of when Brexit first happened, I would say that you had a lot of politicians in the UK once this Northern Irish border became a problem they were kind of just learning about what Northern Ireland was like for the first time. You know, it was a place that had sort of been left to um, left to neglect, as you say, for quite a long time. And so there are problems there. And um, that is, that is again, why people are going to start turning to parties that, you know, kind of are against the whole, who are against the prevailing people in power against the system in general. And, you know, they want to have a change. And so, yeah, another factor in Sinn Féin's rise is that right there. Um, the DUP, uh, which we already talked about, it has been the dominant party. Uh, still probably a little bit more powerful in Northern Ireland than larger Ireland now with the Sinn Féin stuff. They have vowed to block the formation of Northern Ireland's power-sharing executive. 
since this is kind of unique to Northern Ireland because of all the dynamics we talked to for an American audience that isn't used to things like that, what does that actually mean? Um, and how are they holding this up? And what's the effect of that? Because we already said we've had gridlock here for the last couple months badly, but really for the last few years and various itinerations. What does stopping the power sharing executive mean? Yeah, so the power sharing is the system of government that has been in place in Northern Ireland since the Good Friday Agreement. And what it essentially means is that you can't form a government in Ireland just in, sorry, you can in Ireland. You cannot form a government in Northern Ireland just with a majority of seats. That isn't how it works. You need to have parties that represent both the unionist side and the nationalist side of the um, political divide in Northern Ireland. So every party in Northern Ireland actually has to register itself as representing nationalists, as representing unionists, or as non-aligned. And so I mentioned the alliance earlier. They're a good example of a party that calls themselves non-aligned or neither. So in order to have power sharing, you need to have representation. Your majority that you form the government with has to have representation from both the nationalist and the loyalist communities. And there's a whole bunch of issues in Northern Ireland where um, they can trigger what's called a petition of concern. And essentially what that means is that in order for uh, some piece of legislation to get through, you know, one of the parties says, this is of special interest to our community. You need to actually get majorities from both the nationalists and the loyalists in the assembly before that can go. So there's these checks that are in place that are essentially to prevent what happened for the majority of Northern Irish history which was that nationalists were systematically excluded from power and the loyalist majority or the that unionist majority was able to just sort of impose things upon them without them having, you know, really any kind of democratic recourse. So the power sharing as well as voting reform was put in to basically ensure that that couldn't happen, that everything, all the major decisions had to have input from both the nationalists and the unionists. Of course, what this means is that the largest party of the nationalist or the unionist side has an awful lot of power to prevent a government from being formed. So there isn't really a way forward in Northern Ireland without having the DUP agree that they want to form um, a power sharing executive. But for them to form a power sharing executive now, it would mean accepting the leader of Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland, Michelle O'Neill, as the first minister, which is... It is officially a shared post. There is the first minister and the deputy first minister. But in practice, we all, the biggest party gets the first minister. That would be a hugely symbolic win for Sinn Féin. So the DUP, who have already not been keen on power sharing in recent years anyway, are, you know, threatening that, you know, they don't want any involvement with this. The leader of the DUP may not even take his seat in the Northern Ireland Assembly, which is a, a whole other problem because he also has a seat in Westminster right now. So one of these little peculiarities of the system that emerge when you've got a devolved administration. And yeah, the consequence of that would be, again, just no executive in Northern Ireland, essentially no devolved government making decisions on um, the issues that people are caring about. And um, what happens from then is either the UK takes direct control of what's happening in Northern Ireland or another round of elections. And, um, you know, I don't... Uh, who knows what would happen there, but I doubt um, I doubt we would see wildly different things because this is seems to be what people are expressing, that they're happy with the people who were voting Sinn Féin are happy with Sinn Féin. People who were previously voting for the Unionist parties are turning away from them. So that is that's sort of the political landscape right now. And without another power sharing executive, it's very likely that that could, that could only accelerate. 
Yeah, talking to our friend Connor Duffy over in Ireland. This quote grabbed my attention. I was reading through some of the Irish media. Um, Fenton O'Toole wrote it this way. He said, the old Northern Ireland is dead, but the new one cannot be born. You think that's I, you can't get anything into one little soundbite, but that sure seems like it encapsulates a lot of this, doesn't it? That's pretty good, yeah. Because the old Northern Ireland, as I said, was a state, less a sort of region of the UK that was more or less designed so that nationalists would never be in a majority, that they would never be deciding what happens in Northern Ireland. That clearly is just completely not true anymore. It was even actually acknowledged on the BBC, this was something that became quite, it got spread around on um, Twitter and such quite a lot, that a presenter for the BBC just casually threw that line out there when he was explaining the results that, oh, Northern Ireland as a state was designed so that what's happening now would never happen. Um, so I, I don't think there's any, um, I don't think there's a clear indication that that is the old Northern Ireland is no longer the Northern Ireland that exists now. But as for whether the new Northern Ireland can come about, yeah, you've got this gridlock between the parties. There is potentially not going to be a new administration because power sharing is the way Northern Ireland is run anyway. Even if an executive was formed, it's actually unlikely that Sinn Féin's new position would lead to radically different um, sort of governance happening. Since, as I say, they were previously the junior partner in power sharing before, this would be them shifting to senior partner. So you know, you wouldn't expect radically different things to happen. But kind of, as I say, symbolically, this is a huge thing. And it definitely does put the question of a united Ireland far more on the political agenda than it has been for a very long time. One of those, you mentioned Westminster and the peculiarities and how there's kind of this dual identity between Northern Ireland and Westminster, which is the UK Parliament, the Mm -hmm. House of Commons. One of those longstanding peculiarities is Sinn Féin practice abstentia, where they would be elected to parliament, but would not serve. They would hold the title. Mm-hmm. They would hold all the rights, but they wouldn't actually show up in parliament. Is that kind of the next step in normalization of Sinn Féin? Do you think that policy goes away and they see an opportunity here and start making their presence known? I don't think they'll ever do that. <laughs> really? You think they're going to hold on to that to the end? Sinn Féin will never take their seats Westminster. I would be shocked if they did. <laughs> that wow. is something they care very, very much about. And it is some it's something that people criticized an awful lot in recent years, actually, because people said you guys have seats that you could take in Westminster that you could potentially use to influence how Brexit is going. Brexit was something that most people in Northern Ireland voted against. Yes, most people in the UK as a whole voted for. So it was kind of if there was an ever if there was ever an issue that would get Sinn Fein to take their seats in Westminster, that was it, and they didn't. And they every time they've been asked, they just don't even like hearing the question. They're like, "We're perfectly clear, we're never going to take the seats in Westminster." Because so, they just, so that's the one red line here that's never going to get crossed. Yeah, a red line I don't think would ever get crossed. All right, you mentioned it. Uh, this is the big question of all this. I think some folks are probably getting a little ahead of themselves here with this. You know, it's still one election. We still got maybe a trend, but you got to have more than one to have a trend. Mm-hmm. Are we closer to reunification now than we were 10, 15 years ago? Then we were 10, 15 years ago. I would certainly say we are. Um, as for whether it's going to happen tomorrow or next year, I would say no, um, because There's a lot of things you need to keep in mind before we start thinking that this is about to happen. First of all, the unionists as a whole still got more votes than nationalists in this election. Now, it was 0.1% of a difference, I think, when you totted it all up. It wasn't a big margin, but it was there. It was still, as a whole, when you added all the unionist parties together, there was more votes for them. So unionists aren't a minority in Northern Ireland 
yet they're probably not going to be a minority in Northern Ireland, you know, in a very short space of time. Um, a lot of people who are in the middle there, the people who are, say, voting for the likes of the Alliance Party, they are the ones who I suppose would need to be persuaded one way or another, whether a united Ireland was better for them or whether staying in the United Kingdom was better for them. I don't, that kind of um, conversation trying to appeal towards those sort of voters hasn't really been happening yet. But what I think this will really do is this is an issue, as I've said, in Ireland, especially in the 26 counties in the south, has largely been sort of ignored. It's always been like, oh, that's a generation away. We don't need to worry about that now. I think the fact that Sinn Féin is now the party that is largest in Northern Ireland is probably going to be the party that's largest um, after the next elections here in um, Ireland, in the Republic of Ireland. That means we just have to start talking about it. That's what these people primarily believe in. It is the main reason the party exists. So we're going to have to start having discussions about what would a united Ireland actually look like. And once those discussions start, then you're going to start getting input from people who are, you know, sort of maybe middle of the road up in Northern Ireland, don't really know which side they would vote for if a poll came. We're going to have to start talking to these people and they'll, you know, say, well, what are your concerns? And, you know, what is stopping you from voting one way or the other or what is having you leaning one way or the other? And so the actual process that would eventually that would be required before we get to a united Ireland. That is, I think, the big thing that has to be acknowledged about this election. That process is probably going to get going now, where had the election gone another way, maybe it wouldn't have. Yeah, talking to Connor Duffy, um, I'm an outside observer, you tell me, but I do quite a bit of politics, and politics are pretty universal in how they work. It would seem to me that if your goal was a united Ireland, I think UK incompetence and the governance and the dysfunction that we're seeing in Northern Ireland just on a people level, that probably will drive that conversation a whole lot more than the 100 plus years of nationalism on it, because people, it's one thing to have the slogans. It's one thing to have the pride in your country and all that. It's another thing when it's affecting your meals. It's another thing when it's affecting your jobs and healthcare is becoming a big issue in Northern Ireland. The trade tariffs and these sorts of things, we know the backstop thing that just beat everybody mm -hmm. over the head. That seems to me like if you're going to drive a massive change like reunification, that's the sort of thing that would actually drive it a lot faster than uh, what things like what Sinn Féin's been doing for 100 years. Mm, I mean, yeah, it's definitely got to be part of it. It's going to be part of what um, persuades people who are sort of not committed one way or the other. That's going to be what persuades them in the day. And uh, so I think it's a question of when, not if, by the way, now. But when a border poll happens that tries to decide what happens with Northern Ireland and whether there will be unification with um, the Republic of Ireland, I mean, those sorts of questions are going to be weighing very heavily on those people's minds. It's going to be like, well, which choice would be, you know, better for me and my family just in terms of, you know, our well-being, in terms of, you know, the type of society we want to live in, in terms of, you know, sort of uh, the economy, you know, is always something that's on people's minds. You know, a lot of parties don't like that it is, but that's always what people care most about. Um, obviously, we also now have another divide where Ireland is in the EU and the UK isn't. So that is going to become part of the question as well. It's like, well, do you want to be back in Europe? Well, that's one way to do it. So, you know, is there some people who will value being in the EU more than being in the United Kingdom? That's going to be part of the conversation as well. Yeah. Connor Duffy, our good friend, that's Dr. Connor Duffy to you after <laughs> June 1, when they'll put fancy things around his neck and say, 
uh, solemn words upon him. I don't know if they lay hands over there or whatever. Do they do swords over there? I don't know. Uh, swords? They, no, no. That was, uh, be... It's a monarch thing. You know, we're a republic these days. <laughs> oh, excuse me. My bad. Yeah, there'll be there'll be pomp and circumstances, and uh, I'm assuming some liquor will be involved at some point. My friend, until we see and talk to you again on Hertel, let folks know where they can follow you and what you have going on. Yeah, so um, you can find me on Twitter at Ash Connor Duffy Seven. Uh, that's on Twitter, uh, one N in Connor. Um, that's usually where I post all of my thoughts on politics and whatnot. Same on Instagram, but I don't really do much of that sort of thing there. So you know, if you want to hear more thoughts on Northern Ireland, that's where you'll find. With haircut like that, you've got going, my friend. You need to get on Instagram. You'll be big, <laughs> huge, huge. Connor Duffy, our good friend in Ireland, always appreciate catching up. We'll do it again sooner than the gap of time since the last time we saw you. Uh, we talked about it before. We need to talk about uh, freedom of speech in the UK and Ireland and Scotland. A lot going on there. Connor Duffy, appreciate your time, sir. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Glad yes, to be here. Sir. Thank you for explaining this stuff. You do a good job of it, my friend. Talk soon. Talk soon. Welcome back to Hertel. Updating a couple uh, primaries. We were talking with our friend Joe Zemanski a couple days ago about upcoming primaries where we had ourselves some. Uh, Nebraska and West Virginia went to the poll. West Virginia was a little interesting for a couple reasons, not just because I'm a West Virginia homer and that's my home state and I love it so much. A lot of voting going on there because of redistricting. They lost a congressional district and you had a somewhat rare incumbent versus incumbent primary race. Um uh, David McKinley has been soundly defeated by Alex Mooney. He won by almost 20 points total. He had the endorsement of Donald Trump in a state that Donald Trump won by about 40 points, both of his campaigns. So no real big surprise there, even bigger than the poll gappage, which was about 15 points. So Mooney will now be the favorite, heavy favorite to take that congressional seat. Kara Miller, who's the incumbent in what was the older districts uh, won her primary handily and will be also probably returning to Congress without too much uh, debate or pushback there. In Nebraska, uh, the governor's race got very, very ugly. One of the people in it, Charles Herbster, uh, fell under a lot of scandal accusations and things like this. Donald Trump had backed him. He went down to defeat. He was beaten by Jim Pillen, uh, 33 points to 30 points. Uh, this was a crowded field of folks, but Herbster goes down despite the Trump endorsement with all that scandal we were talking about in Nebraska. Big doings coming up on the 17th. A lot more uh, primaries on next Tuesday. We will continue to cover them as we push along in this very contentious, very loud, very noisy, but we must admit, very interesting midterm election. More hotel right after this. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. We always try to end on a happier note or a lighter note. This is an interesting story from GameSpot.com over in Australia. Uh, Epic Games took a Fortnite cheater to court in Australia, with the end result being the cheater apologizing publicly, closing down his business of selling cheated and compromised accounts, and paying Epic for damages, which the company is going to donate to charity. 
According to documents obtained by GameSpot, the Federal Court of Australia determined that Spicotix released his own statement on Twitter saying he was uh, going along with the consent order. He explicitly told would-be buyers would not ask him about Fortnite cheats or player accounts anymore. Quote, I'd like to apologize to the Fortnite community. What I did was illegal and gave players an unfair advantage over other people who play by the rules. I won't do this ever again. You would hope not. As part of the settlement, Depototic Depakatis must also pay damages to Epic in the amount of or both parties' total damages. Those total of those damages, while not shared with GameSpot, will be donated to Child's Play, a charity which is dedicated to improve the lives of children and teens in children's hospitals around the world. Fortnite is the most popular online game in the world right now. It's worth millions and millions of dollars, if not more. So it's nice to see that cheaters not only don't prosper, but the proceeds for that will go to a very good cause. That'll do it for Hertel. Thank you so much for joining us. Please make sure that if you're listening or watching this on whatever platform, the iTunes or Spotify for the podcast version, the YouTube channel for the video version, make sure you subscribe. It does a couple things. Make sure you don't miss anything, whether it's Hertel every weekday morning, the Good Talks interview breakouts every afternoon, twice on Sunday, the review shows, the long-form podcast where we deep dive various issues that warrant it, but it also makes sure we can keep track of what you are and aren't watching. We can tell whether you are enjoying Hardtail or not. Make sure we're giving you the best possible thing we can to turn down the noise of the news cycle. And the most precious thing you give us, your time, is never wasted. We always want to respect it. More and more you are finding us. We see the numbers. Thank you so very much. We're coming off the biggest few days we've ever had, and it's all because of you. We don't advertise other than word of mouth and what we do on our own social media. So thank you very, very much. So until we see you again next time on Hertel, wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. Very much looking forward to doing this again with you on the next Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Hopefully this is the last time you'll hear this ad. Because with Chime checking account features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals 24. That's chime.com goals 24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com disclosures for details. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.